are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners. Uh, Thank you for joining us. If you have been following us, uh, or following me through Colossians. We are going to be on chapter 3 t- today. Uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to chapter 1 and 2. If you have not, if you are just like, you know what, I've already started this one. I'm going to keep going on this one. This can stand alone on itself. You're going to be able to find a lot of truths that are practical for us today, a lot of things that we're going to, um, hopefully the Spirit's going to unveil to us as we go through this. You know, I've got all kinds of notes written in my Bible, all kinds of cross-references, and oftentimes... When I go through these together with you guys, I, you know, I'll, I'll skim over it. I'll look back at some of the cross-references that I've got written down. And some of them I use, some of them I don't. Some of them are only for teaching uh, sermons for a specific time. And, and I don't really feel like it's you know, going to be the most beneficial thing to go through it and have these podcasts be like an hour and a half long. So sometimes I itemize them. I have not done that on this one. So this is going to be all just, let's start in verse 1, and let's just go through the rest of this chapter, and we're going to see where the Spirit takes us on this one. And um, so yeah, this one totally is up for him, and part of the reason being on that one is because I am down here at a discipleship center, and I'm on a back-to-back one. I did chapter 2 just a few moments ago, I ended with that, and uh, I'm starting right back up into chapter 3. But yesterday, we came down here, we put another coat of polyurethane on our countertops because of very reasons it's not worth getting into but we had to do that so it still stinks in here and i'm starting to really um kind of get a little bit lightheaded so hopefully despite my weaknesses in the flesh right now my body that is perishable is beginning to weaken that god will shine through um so if you've not listened to chapter one or two i'd encourage you to do that if not and you want to i'll just go back and listen to it later this one will stand on its own however the very first word of this it says if then so that's drawing our interest in chapter 3, verse 1, back to what he was talking about in chapter 2. And that is essentially, if you have understood that Christ is the key, if you have been raised with Christ in this supernatural raising that takes place with us, because obviously none of us have physically been raised with him. None of us are literally seated with him in heavenly places right now, physically absent of being in this world. But by faith... We take it to be such, as Ephesians 2 talks about, that we have been seated with him in heavenly places. By faith, I understand the spiritual working has taken place, as he says in verse uh, chapter 2, where he says, I've been circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, that my heart has been circumcised, as Paul references in Galatians chapter 6, that he says that I have um, in baptism, in a spiritual baptism, in which the, the Spirit has regenerated me and renewed me, as Titus 3 talks on, then I've been raised with him by faith, Spiritually, I take these things to be true in faith, that the spiritual reality of these things has happened to me in the here and now. It's not something I'm waiting for. It has taken place now. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, 
seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now that's a hand of authority. The right hand is synonymous with authority. And he says that in many instances, but specifically in Ephesians chapter 2, you're going to find it here is what he's talked about it. He says, you have been seated with him. The very end of chapter 1 in Ephesians, he talks about it as well. You have been seated with him. That God has put all things under the hand of Christ, who sits at his right hand. All things. He has authority over all things. And he says, and you have been placed in him. So that you too carry with you in this life the same authority that Christ has. That should blow us away. That should prompt us to do exactly what 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says when he says that we have the authority to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Jesus Christ. That should give us a realization that I don't have to be a servant to sin. I don't have to give in to sin. I don't have to give in to my flesh. I can actually rule over the flesh in the same way that Christ ruled over his flesh. As it says in Hebrews, um, I think it's in chapter 5, and it says in the days of his flesh... It talks about how he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus didn't serve his flesh because he walked in the spirit. And the fullness of that spirit dwelt in him bodily. We have that same capability. He says, so you need, if you have been raised with Christ, you need to seek the things that are above where Christ is. See at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Seems pretty specific of what he's talking about here. He says, I don't want your mind to be set on the things of earth. Well, what would that that entail? Well, finances. I mean, do we have to think about those things? Sure, but is your mind set on those things? Because I guarantee you, if they're set on those things, then you're going to be one in which you're going to be a self-indulgent person or you're going to be anxious about everything. Because you're going to be thinking, oh, what could I spend with all this money? I'm going to build bigger barns, right? Is that guy that Jesus talks about? Well, you're going to be the one who's worried so much because your mind is set on those things. Do we have to think about finances? Sure. But do you have to have your mind set on it? Nope. In fact, you're commanded not to. What's something else? It could be your job. It could be even your family. This isn't always something that's just bad. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about... Let me actually just turn back to it. In verse, chapter 7, verse 29, he says, The appointed time has grown short from now, and those who have wives live as though they had none. And that's a, a topic for a different time. If you want to go back to 1 Corinthians 7 in a podcast I did over chapter 7, I think it actually broke it down into three podcasts. Um, and I, I might be thinking of confusing with a different time, but you can go back and listen to it. This is not going to be the time where I'm going to expound on that one. What I will say is that Paul is setting the stage for what he's trying to get at in his message. And here's what it is in verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things. What he just tells, don't set your mind on things below, things that are on earth. He says the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. The unmarried man, I'm sorry, the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's Paul stating? He says, look, if you're going to get married, as he says later on in the chapter, you found a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Marriage is a good thing, instituted by God. It's a sacred institution that God has ordained from the beginning. Marriage is a good thing. But if you're going to set your mind on your marriage then you're divided. 
And when you get married, you are setting yourself up for the temptation to be divided in your interests. And Paul says, and I would spare you that. He's not saying that you're just going to be, that's your lot in life and you're going to end up being divided for the rest of your life and your interests. No, he says you're going to be tempted to be. What does he say right here? Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Worldly, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, would be something on earth. And again, that's not a bad thing. To think about your marriage of how to be a better husband or how to be a better wife or how to be a better father or mother. To, to function in your family in the way that pleases the Lord as accordance to His Word. To, to train up your children in the ways of the Lord. Those are good things, right? But if you're setting your mind on that, which is the, the way I look at it, is setting your mind is like setting the table, okay? You don't set the table and then remove the stuff before you eat. You set it and you leave it there. And I think that's what he's getting at here is he's like, look, guys, I understand there's things in the world that are going to kind of come into your mind. But I don't want your mind to be set there. I want it to be set on Christ. And I want you to think about the things above. I want you to think about the mission that you have for Christ. Because once you start replacing the mission with the marriage or you start replacing a mission with your family or with your finances or with your job or with whatever it might be. You lose sight of who we're actually supposed to be in this life. We are supposed to be people on a mission. And a lot of it starts with your mind. If your mind is not set on Christ and the mission that we have to serve God, to love people in the way that He commands us to, to be beacons and ambassadors of Christ, to be a beacon of truth, to declare God's Word, to make the Word of God fully known, as Paul talked about in Colossians 1 at the end of it, and you're going to lose sight of your mission and you're going to become a civilian, as 2 Timothy 2.4 says. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. You see, if your mind is set on the things of this earth, then you will become a civilian. But if your mind is on the things of heaven, if it's on the mission, then you'll become a soldier. And that's what God's looking for. He goes on, he says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He says, guys, your, your old way has supposed to have died. You thinking about things of this earth and the things you can get out of this world and, and how you can have your best life now, that's all things of the old life. That's of your old man that's supposed to have died and been raised with Christ in the new man, in the new way of the Spirit. Not in the old way of the written code, as 2 Corinthians 3 talks about. It's not supposed to be a fleshly existence that you live at all. Now Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, he talks about that there are such a thing as infants in Christ who are of the flesh. They need to be sanctified. They need to grow. But this is the message that Paul's writing that all persons who come to Jesus Christ should be setting their gaze towards. This should be our aim, that in everything we do, it is to please God. He says, and when Christ, who is your life, He is your life. You see, when you think like this, when your mind is set on the things of heaven, you're not fixated on what's my next paycheck going to be, what's my 401k going to be, what's my savings account, am I going to be able to buy this brand new house, can I get this new car, because you know what, this other one I'm just not content with, you know, when am I going to take my vacation, and how much can I spend on my vacation? When your mind's not on those things, and you begin placing them on things above, that old man stays dead. 
I want you to listen to me very carefully because this might be one of the most important things that you get out of this entire podcast. When your mind is set on things below, that old man who's supposed to be dead, he comes back to life. And he begins to tap on that window. He begins to knock on the door saying, let me in. Let me govern once again. Let me rule once again. And you might do good to withstand his attempts for a while. You might actually see it for what it is. As Genesis 4, 6 says, that sin is crouching at the door. His desire is to have you. But you must rule over it. That flesh wants to get the throne back in your life. And if you set your mind on the things of this world, then he will. But if you keep your mind on the mission... And he stays dead. This is why he goes on. Listen to what he says in verse 5. This is why he says it. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Do you you see the connection that he's drawing here? He says, I don't want you to focus on the things of this earth. I don't want you to have the cosmos, the worldly affections in this life in which you're doing more than just thinking about those things. You're setting your mind on those things. Because here's the danger that's accompanied with that. In 1 John chapter 2, and verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. This could be in your family, to where you're loving them equal to God. You're serving them on the same level that you serve God. You're not serving them because you serve God. You're serving them in a worldly interest with a fleshly motivation. This could be loving your country with an unhealthy patriotic viewpoint to where your country actually takes better precedence in your life than the kingdom of heaven. And if you don't think that that's the reality, I guarantee you it is because I know of many people who love America more than they love God's kingdom and His church. They are more, it's a more honorable thing for a person to serve their country than it is for them to serve God. If you don't believe me that it's happening, I guarantee you that it's happening Don't look any farther than the American soldier who it is considered an honorable thing for them to abandon their family for the sake of their country and go out there and give their lives. But if a person does it for the sake of Christ, they're walking in sin because God wouldn't actually ask you to do that. I have seen this in person. So don't think that this isn't happening. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You set your mind on the things of the flesh. You set your mind on the things of this world, even good things. God's love is not abiding in you. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, patriotism, is included. It is not from the Father, but is from the world. By the way, who's the God of this world? Who loves the things of this world? Who loves? It's not God. He goes on, he says, And the world is passing away along with his desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He says, if, if you're in love with the things of this world, if that's where you're setting your mind, then the love of God is not, is not living and abiding in you. You're not exercising and living with and exuding the love of God. You're actually more in line with the love of the God of this world. This, this should be a dagger to anyone who has an unhealthy um, level of patriotism in their life. This should be a dagger to anyone who has an unhealthy love for their family. Luke 14, 26-27 says that if anyone does not hate their father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
God's not in the, in the game of competing for affection. This is a serious message. He says, so I want you to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. But you, when you were living in them, back in your former days before you knew Christ, when you were living according to the flesh, when you were living according to your wants and your passions, this is how you lived. But now, now that you've come into Christ, now that you've been raised with Christ, now that you have the grace of God flowing through your veins and the Spirit of heaven coursing your heart, your mind, your soul, he says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, you know what? There is no partiality in Christ. It's not about being a Jew or being a Gentile. Because through the cross, by the blood of the cross that was shed by Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, He has now made in Himself one new man. A Christ follower. See, God doesn't look at those who have been given the spirit of adoption in Christ. He doesn't look at them and say, oh, you're a Jew. He doesn't look at the other one and say, oh, you're a Gentile. He says, I see you as my child. And I don't see you as, as belonging to any certain party or what I see you as my child. Do the Jews still have a, a purpose and a place? Sure. Do the Gentiles? Sure, absolutely. Just as he talks about there is neither man nor woman. Men definitely have a position in which God says, as a man, this is going to be your role. And as a woman, this is going to be your role. But he shows no partiality partiality between the two of who's going to be a receiver of grace. It's not one that's better than the other. They're equal in his eyes, just maybe different functions. He says, you need to put all these things to death because if you're living in those things, if you're walking in those things, then you're going to be tempted to have your mind set on the things of this earth, on your flesh. As we learned about in chapter 2, that Greek word sarks, you're going to be um, tempted to go into your fleshly desires. You're going to be tempted to live for yourself. You're going to be tempted to live for the things of this world and not live for Christ. And he goes on, he says, put on then, enduo is the Greek word. It means to sink into as clothing. He says, it's kind of like you've got this garment that's sitting there and it's not that the clothing comes down over top of you, it's that you sink down into the clothing. It's, it's, it's giving us a picture of humility. And this is why he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and 5-6, through 6, he says that God gives grace to the humble but rejects the proud. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. What are we just talking about where he says that Christ is seated at the right hand of God? He says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Sink into your proper position of lowering yourself before Him. Prostrate before Him, bowing the knee before Him, bowing the knee and kissing the hand of the affectionate one that you so that you say, as Song Solomon says, I found the one in whom my soul loves. Put on then this type of mentality. Did you know that as a Christian, this isn't something that's just put on you? But it's something you have the choice to put on. You see, we as Christians, every day, Paul talks about where he says that I die daily. Every day he chose to say, I'm not going to live by the flesh, I'm going to choose to walk in the Spirit. 
And a lot of people get that confused because at the end of Romans 7.25, a lot of people just say our lot in life is that we're going to be victims to the flesh. That no matter how hard we try, we're always just going to be a servant to the flesh. And that's not at all what Paul's stating. Paul says that if he wanted to try to conquer the flesh in himself, that there's no way he can do it. There's only one way to conquer the flesh, and that is by the Spirit. That's why Galatians 5.16 says that... um, But I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You see, we have a choice. And every day you wake up, you have a choice. Are you going to put on Christ? Are you going to sink into the clothing of Christ and what it looks like to follow Him? Or are you going to stand up in the flesh? And you're going to live by what the flesh wants. You're going to set your mind on the things of this world. You're going to be thinking about how you can have your best life now. Is the heresy that's out there today. Your best life, when it talks about even um, in chapter 2, when he said, when Christ who is your life appears. Oh, no, no, we actually just talked about in verse 4. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also appear with him in glory. He is our life. So your best life now is the one in which you choose to put to death the things of this earth. And you choose to not live for yourself. You choose to say every day, today is a day that I will live for Christ and I will put to death the deeds of the flesh, the mind of the flesh, and I will set my gaze on heaven. You choose to sink into that clothing that's been exemplified. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He says, I want you to put on compassion. I want you to put on kindness. I want you to put on humility. I want you to put on meekness and patience. I want you to bear with one another. It's anakomeia or anakomei is the Greek word. It means to hold up, to sustain, to endure, and to suffer. Bear with one another. This is the law of Christ, as Galatians 6.2 talks about when he says... Um, Now I can't remember exactly what it says. You ever have those moments where you're trying to find what something says, you're trying to recall it, but if you can't remember the first few words, um, it's almost like an impossibility. In verse 1 it says, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's the imitation of who Christ was. Bear one another's burdens. You see somebody suffering, you suffer with them. You see somebody rejoice, you rejoice with them. As Hebrews 13.3 talks about, he says, um, another one of those times where if I can't remember the first word, this is actually one of the first passages I memorized. He says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. He says, I want you to remember those who are of the faith, those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, I want you to remember them that are put in prison for the sake of Christ as if you were in prison with them. You bear their burden. He says, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, this, you know, a lot of people look at this and say this is an unconditional forgiveness. And that's not the case. Because you're going to see condition applied to the way that God forgives us. It's called repentance. Now, there's two different types of forgiveness. And I'm just going to break this down really quickly as I keep going through this. But one is a forgiveness in which you are releasing any root of bitterness from dwelling up inside of you. It doesn't reconcile the relationship. It doesn't restore the relationship. 
but it can actually keep you from being caught in the bondage of weakness. Where you say, you, you, it's like water off a duck's back as the expression goes. You forgive in that sense that it just washes off. And then there's the forgiveness that is a restorative forgiveness. It's the one that brings restoration to a relationship. It's the one in which the person repents and they turn from that and they come to you and they seek your forgiveness and you forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. But in 1 John 1, 9, John including himself in this, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But right before it, he says, if we walk in darkness, he says, then we can't have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son can't cleanse us from all sin. Only if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of His Son cleanses us from all sin. You see, there is a forgiveness that is for you and there is a forgiveness for, that is for both of you. And this is talking about the one, at least in my estimation, where He says, and if one has a complaint against another, somebody's done something to you, you need to let it go so that you don't have a root of bitterness that springs up and by it many become defiled, including yourself. I think he says, you just got to let it go. So as God in Christ has forgiven us, we forgive in that same manner. This is why Jesus is given the explanation to Peter when he says, how often am I forgive my brother in a single day? And I'm paraphrasing what it says. And Jesus says, look, if he turns, if he repents, and he comes to you saying, I'm sorry, then you need to forgive him 70 times 7 in a single day. It's an amazing statement that I think resonated with Peter for a long time. But a key phrase in that is that if he turns, if he repents, as Matthew 3, 8 says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know, there's, there's an element of fruit that has to be kept when you say you repent. And so he goes on and he says, and above all these put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It makes me think of in Ephesians 6 when he says the belt of truth. It says it holds all things together. In Colossians 1, he talked about the exact same thing, that in Christ all things hold together. This belt of truth is something that actually holds all the, um, the armory that we're to put on. When it says put on the whole armor of God, it's what actually everything attaches to and holds it all together and in place. You see, there's a love that is outside of truth. It's humanistic. It's one that sometimes can even be selfish. And you're like, well, that's not love. You're right. That's not really love. However, there is a God-like love and there is a, um, a heaven or a, uh, an earthly type love. The God-like love will always rejoice with truth. It's never um, okay with people living in sin. It's never okay with tolerating sin. It's never okay where it's just like, oh, you know what? That goes against God's word, but you know what? I love you anyways. Let's just keep our relationship going and let's not talk about it. No, the love of God will always rejoice in truth. Because if Christ is the exact imprint of God's love, as we know that He is, because it says He was the exact imprint of God's nature, and that includes love. If Christ was the exact imprint of God's love, He also says that He is the way, the truth, and the life. So therefore, love and truth cannot be separated. You will love in truth and you show truth in love. Doing one at the expense of the other does not represent God and it does not represent Christ. So I want to make sure we understand in verse 14 that um, above all these put on love, but not just a love in which you think it's a tolerating of sin, it's putting on God's love. 
the love reflective in Christ who also cleared out a temple with a whip of cords because people are making God's house a den of robbers and not a house of prayer. And it says, zeal for his house consumes me. He was filled with anger. And I think it was a broken heart type anger, but I also think that it was indignation because as Psalm 711 says that God feels indignation every day because people aren't doing what they're supposed to. And so this love is not going to be absent of truth. It will always be incorporating of it. And that kind of love will bind everything together in perfect harmony. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And just breaking this down real quick, he says in verse um, 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, abundantly. He said, I I don't want you to just read your chapter a day. I don't want you to just take that verse of the day as your devotion and just really kind of spend 10 minutes on that one verse and just say, okay, thanks, God. No, he says, I want you to dwell, I want it to dwell in you richly. You know, there are churches that are out there who they want to throw out a couple verses on a Sunday morning and, and, and then throughout the rest of the week not have Bible studies, not have any kind of getting into the Word. And they might encourage you to go like, hey, here's an app. Why don't you go download this app and they'll give you a verse of the day. Some of them might even say, hey, let's read through the Bible in a year. And, and here's, here's the thing. I... I'm not saying reading through the Bible in a year is bad. I'm not saying that having a verse of the day through an app is bad. I'm not saying throwing out a couple verses on a Sunday morning is bad. But here's what I am going to say. If that's all we're doing, can we really say that it's abiding in us richly? If we're spending 20 minutes a day reading the Word, can we really say that we're doing all that we can, as Paul tells Timothy, when he says, do your best To present yourself as one approved, rightly handling the word of truth? Can we really say that that is letting the word of God dwell in us richly? I I don't think so. I, I think we've come so far from what this text means, so far from what it means to actually study the word to show ourselves approved. A workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We've come so far from that because we've made ourselves so busy and I'll I'll dare say we've even made ourselves so earthly or worldly minded. I look at men and women of old, the George Muellers, who by the time of his death, it was accounted that he read through from front to back the word of God 300 and some odd times. I think of guys like Brother Yun who back in, you know, the early 90s over in China when things were illegal there and things were at, at, you know, probably one of its worst. Part of his curriculum in training disciples of the Lord was to meet in caves every day. And because the Bible is so scarce, they memorized the book of Matthew and their graduation in that month was to memorize the entire book of Matthew. Do you know how much you have to be in the Word to memorize the entire book of Matthew in a month. I think of people like Brother Yun who fasted 
for, I think it was like 105 days with a small bowl of rice because he was praying for a Bible. I think of men and women who the Bible was so much a part of them and who they were that they were living and breathing um, example of the written word. This text is simply stating, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he goes on, he says, if that's the case, here's what's going to happen. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You see, today, we just want it to be an exclusive type thing where it's like, no, 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 my faith is personal. My faith is personal. I'm going to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly, you know, quote unquote, richly. I think most, for most people, would probably be poorly today, if we're just being honest. But don't you dare try to teach me and admonish me in what it says. And yet he says, look, here's the deal. This, as a church, the word of Christ should admonish you. It should correct you. A lot of times why people walk away from from God-fearing, truth-speaking churches is because they don't want conviction. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want the conviction. And so they walk away. And unfortunately, we have many churches who indulge that. They don't want to convict. They don't want to teach the Word of God because it is convicting. And so we just work on relationship and entertaining people and making them feel nice, feel comfortable. The Word of Christ should never make you feel comfortable if you have any shred of darkness in you. And he goes on, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. This goes into what I was talking about earlier, that while there is no partiality between man and woman, there most certainly is roles. God, Christ, man, woman. This is God who set it up. If you don't like it, take it up with Him. He says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. You might say, well, what if my husband doesn't deserve it? Well, I'd encourage you to go read First Peter chapter 3, verse 1. You could actually read all the way through verse 7. First Peter chapter 3, 1 through 7. Husbands have a, a, a prerogative to make sure they honor their wives. But even if they're not, even if they're not doing what they're supposed to, wives, do you know that you still have to respect and honor them as the Lord has commanded you? It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, if you will, if your husband's not doing what he's supposed to. That even if he's not obeying the word as he ought to, you still have the commission to submit, to respect, and to honor him because of who he is as God has placed him in an authority over you. You don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card just because they're not doing what they're supposed to. They will give an account. As husbands, we will give an account, I guarantee you. But you, as wives, do not have the prerogative to not submit to your husband's authority over you as the head. He goes on, he says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Husbands, you have this prerogative. God is telling you, you need to honor your wife. Show them that they have value. Let them have a voice. One of the things that I always try to do with Jen is when we have a decision to make as a family, I always include her in that decision and I always ask her thoughts and I always want her opinion. And though that the, the buck stops with me, I'm the one who makes the ultimate decision. I want her to know that her voice matters. We take walks pretty much most every day and on those walks, and we've got a life choice. You know, recently we decided to become members of a church that we've been going to over the last few months and we've been encouraged by a lot of things that we've seen. Doctrinally, we're not fully on board. However, the things that I've told them, 
that I'm looking for in a church is not to be 100% on board doctrinally because then how are we ever going to help each other um, iron out things, iron sharpens iron, if we're always on the same page in everything, right? That, uh, I'm looking for a church that wants Christ to be the center of everything and fully honored. Not just not a church that wants to entertain people by using the little cardboard cutouts of Christ and say, hey, look, 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 we serve Christ. Christ is in our church, yeah. But all they wanted to do is just entertain people with fluff. That's not a church that, that Christ is building. So I want a church that, that Christ is central, that the word of God is revered, it's adored, and it is made central within the church in who they are and what they stand for. And it is taught from the pulpit, even if it means that it's a hard teaching. And the other thing is is humility. Willingness to be corrected. And I feel like we found those three things at this church that we've been attending. And so we had this um, decision of are we going to join to be members? Because I believe that membership is a partnership. It's, it's through thick and thin. And it might not be a permanent thing for the rest of our lives. It's not a covenant like that. It is a covenant that says that we're going to abide in the word with each other. And we're going to seek to partner with each other for the glory of Christ. Until he might lead one of us away. And so we decided to move forward in membership. But it was one of those things where I included her in the choice. I wanted to know her thoughts. And that shows value. And husbands, you have a commission to show honor to your wives. Because otherwise your prayers will be hindered. Wives, you still have to subject yourselves to your husbands. Whether they deserve it or not. But husbands... You need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? John 17, 17 through 19 gives us that answer. It says that he consecrated himself. Because this goes into 1 Corinthians seven twenty nine. Live as though you had none. I referenced it earlier. You can go back and look at it. He's not saying, guys, husbands, I want you to make your wives um, the priority in your life. That's not how you love them. How you love them is exactly how Christ loved us. It says that he consecrated himself unto holy service unto God. He says, God, you are my mission. And I, by living my life the way you want me to, in accordance with the will of God, by living on mission, I'm providing the footsteps of sanctification for my bride to be the church. Jesus says, I consecrated myself unto living missionally, not earthly, not worldly, not making my bride the priority. He says, God, I consecrated myself. I set my, myself apart unto holy service to you. So that I might sanctify them in the truth. So that they would have the footsteps of knowing what it looks like to say, that's what it looks like to serve God. Psalm 85, 13. Righteousness goes before him, making his footsteps away. You want to know how you love your wives? You live your life fully to the glory of God. You stay on mission as a soldier. Not as a civilian. He goes on, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. This concept obviously is not um, encouraging that if a, you know, a, a father or a mother is telling their kid, hey, I've got this great idea to get some cash. We're going to go rob this bank. Obviously, children, do not obey your parents in that. Because it's not honoring to the Lord. Right? This is a... This is a um, children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. This means that even when it's unfair, even when it goes against what you want, even when it's like, I don't want to clean my room every day. In humility, you realize that they have a position over you of authority and it pleases the Lord for you to do it. 
Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. He says, Fathers, I don't want you to antagonize them. I don't want you to, um, to provoke them unto anger. But I want you to teach them what it looks like to serve the Lord. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Same exact thing as the children under parents. Obviously, if your earthly master is telling you, I want you to do something that goes against the word of God, you don't follow it. This is what Peter talked about whenever he says, um, to you, you must judge whether it's right for us to obey you or obey man. But we cannot stop speaking the name of Jesus, even though the authorities asked him. You could throw in Romans 13 all you want to. But if the authorities ask you to stop being who Christ tells you to be, you must obey Christ rather than men. But in this, this isn't talking about that. This is talking about when things go against your preference, when things go against who you want to be. If your boss is asking you to say, hey, hey, I need you to come into work today on this Sunday, it's going to mean that you're going to have to forsake the gathering of the saints. Then you say no. It's just really a plain and simple. Now, if there's a life and death type thing, then maybe you need to consult the elders, see what they say, but you better not make a habit of doing it because then you're in sin. Because that's what Hebrews 10, 24-26 says. All the more as we see the day drawing near, we need to not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But they, you're, you're servants, you're, you're boss at work, or maybe you're in a situation where you are considered a slave and you have masters. It still goes on in parts of the country, parts of the world. He says you need to obey them. First Peter 2 would be a great one for you to go read. And he says, and not by way of eye service, as if you're just doing it whenever they see you, have integrity. He says, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Meaning that no matter what position you're in, if you're a wife under their husband's leadership, if you're, a children, if you're children under your parents' leadership, if you're you know, an employee under your boss's leadership, if you are a citizen of the United States under the authority of the government, it does not matter what position you find yourself. If you are under authority, have integrity in how you serve. And know that you're doing it for Christ as if you're working for Him and not for man. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done and there is no partiality. You know, this entire chapter is summarized really in verses 1 through 4. Really actually 1 through 3. Where is your mind? Because if your mind is on the flesh, if your mind is on the things of this earth, if your mind is on this world, then you will serve as a civilian. You will be concerned about yourself. You will be concerned about justice and equality and fairness. You'll be concerned about that if things don't go according to the way you want it to go, you'll get mad. You won't be content. But if you keep your eyes and your mind set on the things above where Christ is, If you set them there and you seek the things that are above, then you'll find contentment in life. And even when things don't go your way, even when, you know, whatever authority is over you asks you to do things that go against what you want or what you'd prefer, you can find contentment in Christ. And you can still live a mission that God has commissioned us to live. It's all about where your mind is and really where your heart is. Because Luke twelve thirty four says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure truly is the things of this earth, then that's where your heart's going to be. But if it really is the things above, then that's where your heart will be. 
and you will go wherever your heart sends you. This is why it's in Proverbs or Jeremiah, and I don't remember where it is, but it says, um, guard your heart, for out of it flow the springs of life. Wherever your heart is, it's going to determine whether it's life in you or death in you. And if you keep your mind set on Him, it will be life in every situation. No matter how hard it is of what you go through. Because we have been called to live like Christ. And this is where First Peter 2 comes in. I'd encourage you to go read it. We have been called to look like Christ. And to live like Him. And Jesus, even Jesus of all people. When He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And He was praying, asking the Father, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. He ended with this. Not my will. But your will be done. Why did he say that? Because his mind was set on things above. Not on things below. And so. You want the, the, the remedy. For how to solve life's problems. In, these, in this capacity. Set your mind on things above. It will not be easy. It will be challenging. But those challenges. Are what refine us. More into the image of Christ. Y'all be blessed.